If you have got uh, Bibles with you, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 39. Uh, What I want to do today is reflect on the nature of our death, to try to make sense of my death and your death by listening to Jesus making sense of his. And I want to suggest that as we listen in to Jesus looking back on his death, then we can learn a lot about our death and make sense uh, of what it means for us to die. And... uh, how best we can prepare for that. But let me read Luke 24, 36 to 49. Um, This is after Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Took my mum to the doctor uh, last Friday, actually. Uh, We take turns, the sons in the family, take turns taking my mum along to a doctor's appointment. And she had a Botox doctor appointment. And uh, I got to take her along to her Botox appointment. She goes along every few months to get more Botox injected into her face. And I sit there patiently while the doctor asks the questions and... She kind of gets the needle stuck in and then I drive her home. It's a bit of a drive to the hospital and she appreciates that and it's kind of a bit of fun to have an outing with my mother. Um, Before you get the wrong idea about my mother, she's not terribly vain. She's not kind of a babe. She's 87 and she doesn't really get the injections for cosmetic reasons. Uh, She's got a really jumpy eye. It's very irritating, drives her crazy and so they use the Botox to kind of kill the nerve for a while and give her some relief from the jumpy eye. Thing that drives us crazy, and, the, and, and all of the brothers agree about this when we get together, is that mum doesn't really rate this doctor as much of an expert. Um, when you take her to see him, and you, he wants her to ask questions, and you want her to ask him all, all her questions, she doesn't even kind of ask him questions. She doesn't really sort of think about it much before she goes to see him to kind of report on how she's going, and generally makes it pretty difficult for this Botox doctor to know what's going on with her face. And uh, that drives us crazy. And the thing that really drives me crazy is the person she really turns to as an expert is the lady at the chemist. So mum doesn't talk to this doctor. She doesn't ask this doctor her questions. But pretty much as soon as you drop her home, she wants to get down to the chemist to talk to the lady at the chemist. Because the real expert about Botox for my mother is the lady down at the chemist. And it's pretty simple, really. The lady at the chemist has had Botox in a similar kind of way to my mother. She's been through the whole Botox thing. She's come out the other side. She's got relief from her eye twitching. And so for mum, she's the expert. 
It's one thing to talk to a guy who's a specialist and is the keeper of the needle and all that kind of thing. But for my mother, the real expert is the woman at the chemist because she's been through it. She's been through the Botox thing and come out the other side. And so mum can talk to her and find out everything mum wants to know about the whole process. And she'd much rather talk to the lady at the chemist than she would the specialist. If I can just get the lady at the chemist to stick needles in my mother's face, we could save a lot of money. <laughs> As we were driving along, mum also uh, got talking to me about her funeral. She's 87. She realises she doesn't have a very long time left. Her health kind of comes and goes. There's times when she's very frail and very sick, very aware of her weakness. And she's thinking about the time when she will die. Um, she's made preparations for the funeral. The whole point of the conversation was that I'd know that she'd given the stuff about the funeral to my brother and she didn't want to talk about death at great lengths, but I know that she's thinking a lot about it. She probably doesn't regard me as much of an expert. I'm a theological lecturer, a bit of an expert on the Bible, but for that, I'm not going to rate with my mother. I know that from the lady in the chemist thing. She really wants to be talking to someone who's been through it. Someone who's passed through death and come out the other side, and that's really where it gets difficult. Where do you find someone like that? Where do, you, where do you find someone who's been through it and can tell you about it and explain it to you, explain what's involved, explain to you how to prepare for it, how to get ready for the process? Now and then you'll find it in fiction, but that's often how we know it's fiction. If someone comes back from the dead, for us, that's a pretty good indication that we're reading made-up stuff. Um, I actually did some research... I'm sure you're pleased to know that I did some research for a talk to Sydney, whoever you are. And, um, and I, I discovered there's a top ten people who've come back from the dead in movies. Uh, Terminator, in Terminator 2, I think the numbers become important here, Spock in Star Trek 3, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think that's in whatever that franchise is number eight or something, and then Gan Gandalf. <laughs> now, that's not a very promising list to me. I'm not thinking we're moving outside the bounds of fiction. It's all sounding very Terry Pratchett to me, actually. And um, I don't know who Terry Pratchett is, let alone Discworld. Ugh. Anyway, that's often a signal. The other alternative we've got is to kind of consult the spirit world. And you know that there are people who promise that they can put you in touch with the spirit world. They'll kind of, you know, hook up a kind of connection with someone who's on the other side of the grave and you can talk to them. Just this week I was reading Woman's Day, purely for research purposes. <laughs> and, um, and Steve Irwin's been communicating with his father. So, you know, Steve Irwin, the uh, great Australian... What do you call him? I was going to call him a naturalist, but does that mean he walks around naked? I can't remember. Um, but, you know... They, the environment guy who wore khaki a lot and, um, you know, tragically died a few years ago when the stingray uh, put its spine into him. Um, his father has been talking to Steve Irwin and communicating with him. And there was a whole report, a couple of pages in the Woman's Day, about how much comfort that that brought to Steve's father to talk to his son and to know that he's doing okay. Uh, the main concern that Steve had with his father was that wanted to know what the father had done with the socks and the shoe and the hat that he borrowed a few months ago. Uh, that seemed to be the main thing that he wanted to chase up. He reassured his father that his soul rests above the rapids on the Burdekin River, which is where he and his father used to go and spend a lot of time together, and that's brought enormous comfort to Steve's father. Now, I don't know what you make of that. I don't know what you make of spirits and whether you actually put that 
in the kind of category of fiction, but they're the kind of options that are open to us. We can kind of consult fiction and, you know, occasionally a book will be written, a serious book will be written where a character reflects on their own death. One of the best books I've read in years was narrated by death. I don't know if you've read the book Thief. Uh, it's an amazing book and it was death that narrated it. But again, that was kind of how I knew it was fiction. Like that's how I knew it was made up because I know it doesn't work like that. Well, what we meet in Luke 24 is a third option. Someone who speaks to us from the other side of the grave. In reality, we don't have a lot of the words of Jesus during his earthly life spoken from that period after his grave, but we have got them here in Luke 24. And that passage that I read to you, you get Jesus, you hear Jesus reflecting on his death, what his death meant. Um, and along the way, he'll talk about what your death means. He'll say things that are relevant to your death and my death. That helps us make sense of our death. But I, I want to take our time and get there first because the story doesn't begin there. Luke's account of this incident um, after Jesus is risen from the dead begins in verse 36 with Jesus appearing to his disciples. Uh, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It's obvious from verse 37 that that didn't really work. Jesus appearing from the dead, telling them to be at peace, really had the opposite effect. It completely freaked them out. And we're told in the next verse, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. That was the only category they kind of had for someone like Jesus coming back from the dead because they knew that he would been really dead. That's the whole point of their reaction. They're not expecting Jesus to be dead, uh, to be alive. They're not kind of sort of gullible people who sort of thought, oh, surely Jesus will live on in some way. Surely Jesus will appear to us. Surely Jesus will speak to us. When Jesus appears to them on the other side of the grave, they're absolutely freaked out because there was nothing really to prepare them for something like this. And when Jesus appears to them, you kind of realise that they were convinced that he was really dead. And so he goes on to show to them that he's really alive. And he furnishes the kind of evidence that you'd need to convince somebody that you are really alive. Jesus isn't just a spirit, isn't just a ghost. He appears to them in bodily form. His body has been restored. And he gives them the opportunity. If you have a look in verse 39, if you're following, he says, Look at my hands, look at my feet. Touch me and see. <laughs> I was watching that doctor last night who cuts up cadavers. You know that, that guy who is that freaky German guy who cuts up and they were doing a whole thing on blood and how much blood you lose when you cut different arteries and they had a dead body there and they were cutting the different arteries and showing you how much. After a while, I just had to give up. It was just too much for me. But, you know, you can imagine what it would be like if someone that you were absolutely convinced had been dead was suddenly standing there going, touch me, have a look, see for yourselves. But that's the opportunity that Jesus gives them to show them that he's really alive. A bodily resurrection. Not appearing to them as a spirit. Not speaking, communicating with them in some spooky way from beyond the grave. But Jesus back from the dead, standing in front of them. Giving them the opportunity to look, to inspect, to touch. And then their freaked outery turns to a different kind of freaked outery. They were really scared before. Now they're just as freaked out, except this time it's joy and amazement. And Jesus goes, look, you know, I noticed that you're eating. Do you mind if I have some? 
can I have a piece of fish? And there in front of these people, he eats the fish. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if this feels like fiction to you. But Luke's convinced that it's not. The one thing you have to begin with is that Luke doesn't think he's telling you a made-up story. Luke doesn't think he's telling you a fictional, legendary, mythical account here. Luke is convinced that this is something that really happened. He gives you the eyewitnesses. He lets you know who the people were who saw Jesus, who witnessed it happen. And he takes you through the evidence that they had. Luke is convinced that he's writing history, that he's describing something that actually happened in this space-time continuum that you and I live in. Go back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Luke tells us that he's writing as a journalist or, or like a historian. He's done his research. He's checked his sources. He's talked to the people who, who he regards as reliable. He's compared what the different sources say. And where he's convinced that it's true, he's written it down in an orderly account of all that Jesus said and did. And if you've got the time later, you could read Luke chapter 1, the first four verses, the very beginning of Luke's story. He explains his credentials as a researcher and reporter on all that's happened with Jesus. Now that doesn't mean you have to accept that this is not fiction. But I want you to be very clear that Luke doesn't think he's writing fiction. Luke, who was so close to these events, could speak to people who were actually there, is convinced that this really happened and reports it as something that did happen. So if you're investigating Christianity, if you're trying to work out whether it's plausible, whether it's believable, where everything that gets said about Jesus could possibly be true, that would be a place you'd have to start. You'd have to check whether you can rely on Luke's account and the other gospel accounts. You'd need to check out and work out whether you think it's just fiction. But be very clear, Luke doesn't think it's just fiction. And Luke doesn't think Jesus is just a spirit communicating. Luke is convinced that in this remarkable, just about unique way, someone came back from the dead and restore, was restored to bodily existence, just like you and I enjoy. Now, I don't know about you, you still may have your fictionometer ticking away, going, guy come back from the dead, made up, doesn't happen, never seen it, never witnessed it, can't believe it. Why would this unique thing happen? Why would something so remarkable, something that immediately rings our fiction bells, why would we believe that it could possibly happen, that it might be something that occurred in history? Well, that's what Jesus really goes on to explain. Jesus goes on to explain as he speaks from the other side of the grave and reflects on his own death. He explains to us why it would be that something so remarkable, so unbelievable would actually happen. It's because Jesus occupies this special place in the plans of God, the God who made the world. The God who created this world has got a special plan that Jesus is at the very centre of, that Jesus' death stands at the very centre of. This is what he says. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Jesus took these people back two millennia to explain what his death meant. To make sense of his death, he took them all the way back to Moses and even beyond to explain that Jesus' 
is the plan that God has been working towards right through human history. You go back to Moses, you read about the, the sacrificial system where an animal's blood was shed so that people could be forgiven and enter into the presence of God to have a relationship with God and worship him. Ultimately, that's prefiguring Jesus. That's preparing you for Jesus. It's so you'll be able to make sense of what Jesus' death means. It's a sacrifice for sins so that people like you and I can be forgiven. Or you go back to the prophets and you read about the suffering servant in a prophet like Isaiah or similar figures in Jeremiah and some of the other prophets. This suffering servant who lives an innocent life and yet is put to terrible suffering and then put to death only to come back to life again and to be the source of life for others. Jesus says, that was pointing forward to me. I am the servant. Of course they couldn't make sense of it back then. It was throwing forward to me and what I would do to overcome death and to be the source of life for other people. You can read on in the Psalms. You'll get all kinds of references. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, that will prepare you for the details of Jesus' death. Soldiers casting lots for his garment there at the cross. The soldiers offering Jesus vinegar on a stick. All of it was prefigured by the suffering of the innocent sufferer that you'll find in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. Psalm 22 will tell you that in the end, that sufferer is somehow brought back to life again. Where would that happen? How could that possibly happen? Well, it's because Jesus occupies this unique and central place in the plans of God and the purposes of God. Jesus had to suffer and die so that we could be forgiven, so that we could share in life, so that we could look forward to a bodily resurrection just like his, to the restoration of our life and our existence in an eternal state, in a state that's capable of sustaining us forever. For Jesus to achieve that, he had to die. He had to offer his life as a sacrifice for us, as a sacrifice for our sins, so that we could come into a relationship with God, according to Jesus. And more than that, he had to rise from the dead. It wouldn't have worked if he didn't come back from the dead. Unless Jesus was vindicated as an innocent man so that it was clear that his suffering was for other people, for people like you and me, then the whole thing wouldn't have worked. God had to bring Jesus back from the dead. And by bringing Jesus through death, by overcoming death and making Jesus the prototype of this new resurrection existence, God sets up the possibility of a whole new humanity as people put their faith in Jesus are conformed to Jesus and, like Jesus, uh, inherit this resurrection life. And then finally, the last step in the process, verse 47. Jesus says, And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now that Jesus has risen from the dead, the message can go out. The news can spread. It'll emanate from Jerusalem where Jesus died and rose. But Jesus' intention, God's plan, is for that message to ring out to everyone everywhere. That everyone everywhere should hear the message that there's no need to die unforgiven. You don't have to die unforgiven. Forgiveness of sin is available to everyone everywhere. And if you've stumbled in today, if you came to the wrong meeting, 
If you've come with a friend and you've never really heard about Jesus before, I'd find that hard to believe. But I've met people who really know nothing about Jesus. Even today, that message has come to you. Spreading out from Jerusalem, that great ripple effect through human history, everyone in this room has heard that message that Jesus set in motion by rising from the dead. And that's where we'll find ourselves and our death in this passage. Have a look at verse 47. Because you and I are there. You and I are there in the mind of Jesus. You and I are there in the purposes and intentions of Jesus. Your death and my death is caught up somehow in the significance of Jesus' death. I know it's a big picture that Jesus is painting. I know that when you go looking for yourself, you kind of feel very tiny and insignificant. It's like those year 12 school photos. I don't know if you've had your year 12 photo taken. I'm sure I'm there. Um, it says down the bottom that I'm there, but as I glance at the photo, I have a lot of trouble finding myself. That's true most days. But there in that school photo, because it's the big picture, it's all 150 boys who were in my year 12 and they're all standing there uh, or sitting I'm not holding the board. That was right through primary school. I was always the shortest kid in school photos, so I held the board at the front. Um, that's not the case. I'm just lost in anonymity in this big picture. But you know what it's like. It's a big picture and you can easily get lost, but you know you're in there. And that's what Jesus is doing with the significance of his death and the scope of human history that he covers as he speaks. You and I are there. And repentance and forgiveness will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus wanted you and me to get this message, for you to have it preached to you, for you to have it communicated to you, that forgiveness of sins is available if you will repent. If you will turn your back on a life of rebellion, a life of resistance to God and his will, and if you'll plead with God for forgiveness. God will wash you clean of everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do that's against his law and against his will. I don't know what terrible, dirty secrets you have. I don't know what things stain your life. I don't know what things you've run through your mind and imagined that leave you stained and shameful and guilty. I don't know what you've said to people, sometimes in a moment of madness, a moment of rashness, that you wish you could take back, that you wish you could undo the damage. I don't know what you've done along the way, what actions you've performed, what you've done with your hands, your feet, your face, your mouth. I don't know what you've done that makes you dirty, fills you with shame and means that every time you try to draw near to God, your instinct is to turn and run away. We all know what that's like. We've all been there. Even if we've come and accepted this amnesty that Jesus is offering, all of us in this room can identify with that guilt and shame that comes from having resisted God's will and done the things that we know are wrong. Jesus says, everyone everywhere can now be forgiven. Spread the message. Spread the word. Let people know they don't have to die unforgiven. And that's the thing that comes through in this passage so loud and clear. And if you take one thing away today, this is it. Jesus says, 
There is a fate worse than death. There's nothing worse than dying unforgiven. Dying forgiven for Jesus isn't something to be terribly fearful of, terribly afraid. If you've had your sins forgiven, if your relationship to God's been restored, then death is something you can anticipate and face without terrible fear, without being freaked out, because the sting of death has been dealt with. The real horror of death is our sin and our guilt, what we rightly deserve to be punished for. That's why death came into this world, because of human sin and guilt. But if you die forgiven, you can look forward to life with Jesus, life in the presence of God. If you die unforgiven, it's a very different story. And Jesus says to each one of us today, leave the land of the unforgiven. Turn your back now and get out of there. It's bad enough living in the land of the unforgiven. Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus knew what it was like to be surrounded by people scrabbling for the limited resources in this world, feeling like Jesus was terrible competition, feeling like they had to remove Jesus as a threat, trumping up lies and charges against Jesus to have him removed, to have him executed. Jesus knows what it's like to live in the land of the unforgiven. And maybe you know it all too well as well. You know what it's like to look out on the world, to watch nations competing for these limited resources that are available, willing to invade other nations, willing to rain down bombs on the civilians of other nations because of their competitiveness, because of their inability to forgive incidents that occurred centuries ago sometimes. Long histories of bitterness and spite that's, that's flared into terrible outbreaks of violence again and again and again over the centuries. I don't know if you look out on that world and just feel disgust and horror at what people are willing to do to each other. Maybe you know it in the context of your own family. When you go to a family reunion and you know all too well the people who don't talk to each other, the people who've had their spats and their feuds for years now, People who just give each other the cold shoulder or they they speak kind of nicely to each other and as soon as they turn their back, start the snide comments to their part of the family or the people in their family that are on their side in the great feud. I don't know if you've been part of that kind of land of the unforgiven at that, that kind of close quarters. Or even in your friendship group, people who can't forgive each other, people who continue to kind of work out their rivalries, their animosity, their bitterness arguments that have been going for so long, friends that you've had to tear out of your address book because the relationship's ended now because of the land of the unforgiven. Bad enough living there. Jesus says one day the doors will be closed and people who are unforgiven then will live in the land of of the unforgiven forever. Live out an existence where they're the rules of the game where there's nothing to break the cycle, where you only have people lost in their bitterness, their regret, their horror at what they've done and the consequences that they're facing. And Jesus says, I came into this world to die and rise again from the dead so that you could be set free from the land of the unforgiven. And Jesus says to each one of us, leave now. If you haven't got out yet, get out now before this whole thing comes down. Get out of the land of the unforgiven. Come and claim the amnesty that I've made possible. 
Come and ask for forgiveness from my Father in heaven because it's freely available now that I've died and risen from the dead. Come and share in my victory over death, my conquest over sin. Come and enjoy the life you were always intended for, you were created for in the purposes of God. Don't find yourself shut out in the land of the unforgiven. Don't live the rest of your life without making your way into the community of the forgiven that Jesus is creating and building in this world. But at all cost, don't die unforgiven. It mattered so much for Jesus to open the doors to the land of the forgiven that he came, offered his life, suffered terribly and gave up his life for our sake. And now he says, repent. Turn your back on the land of the unforgiven. Turn your back on the things that you know offend God and are against his will. The things that destroy your relationship with God. The things that destroy your relationships with people around you. Turn your back. Disown those things. Determine to live differently and accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Give up the life of selfishness and greed and lust and deceitfulness and come and live in the light of Jesus' forgiveness. That seems to me to be the sense that we make of our lives and our death when we stop and consider the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Jesus says right here at the end of Luke's great story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in Luke's Gospel. These are almost Jesus' final words that we've just been reflecting on. And what I want to do is give you the opportunity to respond today to Jesus' invitation to leave the land of the unforgiven and to find a relationship with God where you are washed clean and where nothing stands between you and God. I want to give you that opportunity by praying. I'm going to lead us in prayer. It's the kind of prayer that you can pray along with. I'll pray it slowly enough for you to kind of work out if you want to join in. Um, if that's something you'd like to do, please do. If you're someone who's already fled the land of the unforgiven, then please just sit there quietly and kind of, you know, add your prayer quietly without saying anything to what I pray. But if you're today someone who wants to avail yourself of the forgiveness that Jesus offered, wants to turn your back on the life that you've been living, then join with me in this prayer. And... Um, I'll close up with Amen at the end. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I recognise that I have lived a life of rebellion against you and often done what displeases you. I have sinned and deserve to be punished. Thank you for opening my mind to what Jesus has done for me. And thank you that the message of forgiveness has reached me. Strengthen me to repent from my sins. Please forgive me. Make me one of your children. And make me one of Jesus' followers. Amen.